It is Wednesday, January 24th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, a zine about climate justice in Northwest Arkansas. Our passions for art, marketing, journalism could come together to create this idea of community celebration through an art form. We started putting together roots. Plus, the transgender experience in Arkansas. And so the best way I knew how to communicate to my mom was asking her if I could be a boy. And, of course, at the time, not knowing what trans was, my mom was like, well, no. And imbibing without the booze. Typically, we tried to kind of just riff off of known existing popular cocktails and try to try to mimic those flavors. flavors. Mm -hmm. First, though, the latest news this hour from NPR. Walton Arts Center presents Damn Tall Buildings, bringing their bluegrass and American roots-inspired music to West Street Live, Thursday, February 1st. And on Friday, February 2nd, Brian Blade and the Fellowship Band bring their jazz and gospel-rooted sound to the Starlight Jazz Club Series. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later today, we take a trip to Pink Alchemy in Fayetteville to create some upscale mocktails in celebration of those spending their January dry. Dana Carruth takes us there in our second half hour. First up, Zero Hour Arkansas is a climate justice organization based in northwest Arkansas that is targeted towards underrepresented youth. The group is a chapter of the national movement This Is Zero Hour, which originated in 2017. This January marks one full year since the first edition of Roots magazine, Zero Hour Arkansas's Environmental Justice Zine. But what is a zine, and why is this organization creating one? Ozarks at Large's Sifia Narani reports. A zine is a self-published physical work, often mass-printed in a small circulation, Zines have become a common medium for artists with niche topics wanting to express their ideas using images or text. Roots Magazine was created in 2022 as a way to spread information related to environmental injustice to the youth in our area. Amelia Southern Uribe, one of the founders of Zero Hour Arkansas and Roots, says the concept began in early 2019 as a chapter in Fayetteville High School. And from there, we were focusing on climate strikes and, you know, engaging with youth through traditional methods of sustainability like composting, recycling, working on policy with the City of Fayetteville Sustainability Department to kind of encourage carpooling to schools. As she got older, Amelia says she realized that in order to attract a more diverse audience to environmental activism, Zero Hour Arkansas would need to use a different approach. The work that I started out doing was very region-specific, but I wanted to take a more intersectional approach. You know, coming from an identity of having immigrant parents and being queer and noticing how all these different factors affect different areas of my beliefs and policy, but they also affect me in a way that relates to sustainability. I wanted to take my background with my culture and um, my queerness and bring that into an intersectional approach to climate justice. And I wanted to start talking about ways that we experience environmentalism in our day-to-day life and 
at a systematic approach as well. So um, Zero Hour started to become less on policy and more a community-based organization to meet people where they're at and give them the, the tools to talk about complex issues like environmental racism or environmental ableism. And with that approach, we could reach more people that were experiencing different forms of oppression as well. Environmental racism is the disproportionate impact of environmental hazards on people of color, while environmental ableism is the tendency to exclude or erase people with disabilities from environmental progress or action. With these forms of oppression in mind, Zero Hour Arkansas focused less on traditional forms of activism and more on ways that bring a voice to those that are often misrepresented in environmental politics. Ways like Roots Magazine. Roots is our climate justice scene. We thought about it from the idea of like what is missing in Arkansas. And we started looking at statistics and gaps in our education system and why climate education isn't taught at a broad level or even at a high school level. So Grace Holly and I, the co-founder of Roots, started talking about how our passions for art Marketing, journalism could come together to create this idea of community celebration through an art form. We started putting together Roots um, and we opened up submissions. In our first year, we gained around 20, 30 submissions from local artists. And this year, um, we really focused on getting diverse perspectives from other parts of the country. So we have submissions not just from Arkansas, but from Mississippi, out of the country, Panama and other regions. We really just wanted to highlight what environmental justice at first looked like. I asked Amelia how it felt to personally reflect on how Zero Hour has progressed since its creation in 2019. I think it's been really incredible to see our growth. We've added new members since. At first, it was just Grace and I and a couple of our friends working on the zine, just four people, and now we are leading a group of 20. And not only that, we've gained so much not just support, but financial support as well um, from communities. Like we've gotten donations and funding from foundations that we thought we would never have ab- absolute like access to. And not only are we getting that um, access financially, but we're seeing like impacts not just in our university, but in the community. And people are talking about environmental justice. And especially, I'm reflecting on when I first started in activism. People would tell me, like, environmental justice is not a thing, environmental racism isn't a thing. And even, like, sharing my story about, like, growing up in Florida and being an activist and then coming to Arkansas, like, I could start seeing that the way that we talk about climate change and the way that we experience climate stories through other people, the more empathetic we are to it and the more that we want to take action because someone we know and love has been impacted by it. So I think even that part of it, like, sharing a story and especially Putting something out there as raw and beautiful as Roots is really just inspires people to take action. The next issue of Roots magazine will focus more on how the community interacts with our environment on a day-to-day basis. We really wanted to focus on building up our community, so highlighting people that are doing the work for years, doing work that maybe isn't talked about, like sustainable fashion or gearing up for what our future can look like in Northwest Arkansas with outdoor tourism and making that an inclusive approach with using an environmental justice lens. Those are just a few examples of things that are going on right now and why equitable education and journalism is going to be the key to moving forward in any space, but particularly Northwest Arkansas, since we 
are very heavily focused on outdoor tourism, and that's where our economy will shift in the next couple of years. We want to keep building it and reaching new people and expanding the ways that we think about environmentalism, whether we go in a direction to focus on eco-anxiety in youth or we start thinking about what the future is for environmental justice. I think we're definitely trying to stay as innovative as possible, and I think with that, like, we definitely want to hear from the community and see what people want and what people need. So definitely just engaging more, putting on more events, and learning how to reach more people too in ways that we haven't before. And I think also with that, um, I forgot to mention earlier, but we do want to compensate our artists and our journalists. And moving forward, we want to be able to compensate anyone that submits. So I think a lot of activists, whether that's in the form of educators or journalists or people that you see leading protests, this work is free labor, but it goes it, it goes into impact community and the reward that you see is not always a financial reward, but it's the way that you can impact and relate to your community. To find out more about Zero Hour Arkansas or to stay updated on Roots Magazine, you can visit at Zero Hour Arkansas on Instagram. To learn more about This is Zero Hour, the National Climate Action Organization, you can go to thisiszerohour.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. Ahead on our show, a new eight-part series about the transgender experience in Arkansas. And so the best way I knew how to communicate to my mom was asking her if I could be a boy. And, of course, at the time, not knowing what trans was, my mom was like, well, no. We hear an excerpt from the first episode of T. That's in about 12 minutes right here on Ozarks at Large. A proposed constitutional amendment that would legalize some abortions in Arkansas has been approved by the Attorney General. The Arkansas Abortion Amendment can now begin collecting signatures to officially get the amendment on the ballot. Jenny Diaz is the executive director of 4AR People, and she says she felt relief and excitement when she received word of the approval. We were really happy. It was a, it was a good day yesterday in Arkansas. The next step is to collect more than 90,000 signatures across the state to clear the next hurdle of getting the measure on the ballot. Diaz says their signature collection process will kick off with an event in Fayetteville this Sunday at the town center from 2 to 3 p.m. We're going to be part of um, a Voices and Votes rally to center women's issues, women's rights, um, and, and the power of women's votes. And we will be there. We will be there ready uh, to collect signatures from any registered voter who believes that the people of Arkansas should have the right to determine um, what the state does with abortion policy. Any registered voter in the state of Arkansas can sign a petition for a ballot measure. One piece of legislation that passed during the 2023 session was Act 584, the Fentanyl Enforcement and Accountability Act, sponsored by Representative Jimmy Gazaway of Paragold. An element of this law that has seemingly flown under the radar is the legalization of fentanyl test strips here in the state of Arkansas. Senator Justin Boyd of Fort Smith, a pharmacist, attempted to pass legislation solely to legalize fentanyl test strips earlier in the session, but the more comprehensive legislation by Representative Gazaway took precedent. Representative Nicole Clowney of Fayetteville says this is a really big deal. Legislative session just happens so quickly that things kind of get lost. And so I'm just really happy that, you know, we can tell the story however we can. So thank you. Can you talk a little bit about 
uh, what fentanyl strips are kind of first of all and and that original classification and how it's changed? Sure. So fentanyl strips are small strips of paper. They retail for about a dollar a piece and they can very quickly detect the presence of fentanyl in other drugs. You know, we know that fentanyl is very dangerous. We know that it's deadly, but a lot of people don't know how sneaky it is. Often drugs are laced with fentanyl. So people end up overdosing on this drug that they don't even know they've ever ingested. And so these strips can help prevent that um, by allowing users of other drugs to, to test for the presence of secret fentanyl before ingesting anything. And so uh, in, in, in the past, uh, in Arkansas, it was illegal to have these on your person because they were considered drug paraphernalia, right? That's right. They were considered drug paraphernalia in Arkansas until there was a, um, a, a bill that was dedicated to some various fentanyl-related policies uh, brought by Representative Jimmy Gasaway out of Paragold in this last legislative session. And in that bill, um, he said, you know, that bill said that fentanyl test strips shall not be classified as drug paraphernalia under Arkansas law. Do you know what the reasoning was behind it previously being uh, labeled as such? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I have heard some rumblings. You know, we've, we've heard some pushback on to say handing out contraceptives you know, birth control or condoms in high schools because we don't want to encourage students to engage in risky behaviors, right? The thought being that providing those protections might encourage people to have, you know, sex as teenagers when they wouldn't otherwise. I think a similar philosophy was kind of standing in the way of fentanyl test strips for a while. In other words, you're putting fentanyl test strips most commonly in, in other illegal drugs, right? And so I think the thought is, well, we don't want to make it easier or we don't want to provide a sense of safety in doing other illicit drugs. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure that these test strips aren't out there. But the data has become overwhelmingly clear that these test strips do save lives. Um, I don't think anybody would think that a 16-year-old buying marijuana from a friend should accidentally be exposed to a deadly drug like fentanyl. And so the thinking has really changed. Um, but Arkansas is still on the front lines of this. And I really applaud Representative Gazaway um, for making this change as soon as we did. What have you heard from your constituents about uh, just uh, exposure to fentanyl and, you know, the maybe this is a relief to some of those who are in similar situations to what you described, you know, a teenager who is, you know, just looking to get some marijuana and could end up, you know, in a, in a really terrible situation? Oh, yeah. I mean, I hear from my constituents all the time. I don't know that there is a person in Arkansas who has not been impacted by this drug in some way, who doesn't have a story of a family member or a friend um, who was lost to this drug. And, and as a mother myself, I know that all of my friends with their own kids, we live in terror. It is so different than when we grew up, which I like to think was not that long ago. Um, it is so different for teenagers these days. And, you know, I just think that um, most people want common sense solutions that are going to make all of us safer and healthier. And this is certainly one of those things. Um, I will say that there has been a little bit of confusion on the retail side. I heard from a constituent who tried to buy these and was told that they were not legal in Arkansas. Um, I know that the attorney general's office has been working really, really hard to change that, to get the message out and to let retailers know that these are legal because of course, um, if they're not easily accessible to our Kansans, then, then the point is, is defeated. But um, hopefully that message is getting out. And I've, got, um, I've gotten some confirmation over the last few weeks that it is. 
What would you um, What would you say to folks who are maybe concerned that the legalization of these fentanyl strips may lead to more risky behaviors? I would just say that I can't think of a riskier behavior than unintentionally ingesting fentanyl, and we know. We know that fentanyl deaths are increasing exponentially year over year in Arkansas. And if there is anything that we can do to limit them, we should be doing it. Um, This isn't going to increase risky behaviors. All this legalization will do, and the data clearly shows, will make risky behaviors that are going to be undertaken anyway um, be undertaken with a little bit more care. And that's our job as policymakers to allow the space for that to happen. And I'm just so grateful that we did. Is it encouraging to you that this has been bipartisan support for this sort of action? It is. It is. You know, we see a lot coming out of Little Rock that is that is strictly punitive um, rather than preventive, rather than sort of trying to get at the underlying causes. And I think this last legislative session, um, we really saw a reckoning with the root causes of, of a lot of what plagues us. And I think um, whether it be substance use disorders or mental health issues, I think there is um, a growing... Um, a growing sense that addressing our problems is going to take more than just increased punishments for people that we have decided have, you know, quote unquote, done wrong. I think this is a really important step in keeping our Kansans safe, but I also think that it will go a long way in terms of crime prevention. And I know that that's something that we all care about. So yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged. Representative Nicole Clowney, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. Jagged Little Pill is on stage at Walton Arts Center in downtown Fayetteville through Sunday afternoon. The musical, inspired by the work of singer-songwriter Alanis Morissette, weaves themes of pain, empowerment, and healing into the script. There are matters of sexual identity discussed, substance abuse, and sexual assault addressed during the production. Terrilyn Jones, a Nashville native, is Frankie Healy in the national tour. This morning, she was in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss her role and the opportunity it has for her to connect with audiences. Playing her is sort of a treat because she's a lot like myself. So the the fun thing about acting is a lot of times people think you're like putting on a character. Most of the time it's the opposite. You're like stripping away, you know, all the pleasantries and niceties that you have in your normal life Um, and really kind of try and get to the core of like who you are and how the like, how these words come out of you in a in a way that's like honoring to the circumstances that also sounds challenging yes (laughs) because you you may have to channel some things yes it can be challenging um some shows like i think the cast yesterday had a an interesting show because our travel day was so hectic and um like getting into the theater was so hectic so some shows like the the energy is just very emotional and like very like we're we're sort of releasing. Um, our one of our associate choreographers gave us the advice of like bring who you are today to the show, and I think our cast does a really good job of that. Um, some shows are light, easy breezy. Like I come in, I feel great, and I'm like, all right, let's say these lines and do this dance and get it over with. But some days are are a little bit challenging, yeah. 
How would you describe, for someone who hasn't seen Jagged Little Pill yet, how would you describe Frankie? Frankie is 16, and she's at that age where she is coming into her own. And she is a black young woman in a white family. She's a transracial adoptee. So coming into your own in a space that doesn't really recognize you or doesn't see you, um, she kind of feels like a bull in a china shop sometimes where she's trying to do all the right things, but the environment really just isn't for her. So it's it feels chaotic for better or for worse, like she's writing her own story. And I'm personally very endeared by that. She doesn't always make the right choices, but she's trying to do the right thing all the time. Whether it's a novel or a play, when you become connected to a character, especially if you're a patron, and you see them not make a right choice, mm-hmm. it can be really tough. Yeah. Is that the same if you are portraying that character? It can be. I think when you're an actor, you really want to find a way to justify everything that the character is doing. Um, in acting school, a lot of the time they tell you, like, don't judge your character. I had the privilege of seeing Jagged Little Pill before being in it. So when I was watching it, watching Frankie, you know, do her thing, I was like, girl, <laughs> please be serious. Um, but now having to play the character, I have to, like, find a way to make it make sense in in her mind, like, what she's doing. And so I really try to avoid judgments. It can be easy, but really trying to find a way of, like, where is she, like, at the start of the show? And how does that place get her to, like, logically make these choices? Okay, you've got to do all of that. Mm-hmm. You've got to travel. Yes. <laughs> but then there's choreography and there's singing. There sure is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's tiring. It's a tiring job, but I'm very grateful to be doing it. Is this your first national tour? This is my very first national tour. What is that like? Honestly, it feels I'm beyond blessed and grateful to be here. I had the privilege of walking across the graduation stage and going home and shooting this audition and a couple months later walking into this massive professional job. Um, for a lot of like college graduates, it is not that simple, but I have this like immense privilege and every day I'm like pinching myself on stage of like, I was watching this show my senior year of college from the balcony, from the back row of the balcony, (laughs) like seeing this character and really resonating with her. And then three months later I get to do it. And yeah. When you and the, the only way I've ever seen a Broadway show is the back row of the balcony. Yeah, most it's people. It's not a bad scene. <laughs> right? right. When you were watching this, mm-hmm. did you think to yourself, "I want to be in this," or did you learn about the opportunity after that? I became obsessed when I saw the show, and I saw Frankie, and I was like, "That has to be me." Like I like it has to be me. I could play this character so well. Like she basically is me. So. When I was watching it, I think I already, like, planted the manifestation seeds in that back row of, like, I have to get my hands on this character. And then it just so happened that, you know, I was in the right place at the right time and got seen for it. And, you know, the rest is (laughs) here I am now. (laughs) What's the teamwork like when when you're coming on your first national tour? And I'm sure there are, whether Mm -hmm. it's in front of the audience or behind the stage, people who've done several. What's it like working together? It's... 
So the fortunate thing about Jagged is that the cast is very young. So a lot of us are making our debuts. Mm. I would I would argue most of us are making our debuts for Broadway national tours. Um, so there's that camaraderie of, you know, being surrounded by people who are kind of in the same place as you. Most of uh, the cast has like are still in college and like either dropped out or are still pursuing their degrees. So that that's nice camaraderie but there's also people like um julie reiber and ben eakley who are broadway mainstays who like they do this like this is their job coming into rehearsals with them in my first couple of weeks they play my parents in the show but they're they play my parents in real life too especially that first week um julie was like do you need groceries like what do you need and constantly sort of getting advice from them of like this is where you're supposed to be like you got the job you don't need to put on anything extra like like you're supposed to be here and it's nice to have that reassuring voice of somebody who's done it time and time and time again for years so most of the music in Jagged Little Pill comes from the mid 90s Mm -hmm. there are a couple of originals that were written for this it's perhaps not fair and it's a generalization but we think of some of Alanis Morissette's music when we first heard it as either teen angst or young adult angst Mm -hmm. or situations we've all gone through and I think there is that sort of timelessness with this show. Yeah. Like, you may not have been a teenager or young adult for a few decades, but you remember. Yeah. It may be a different circumstance. Yeah. I think uh, the thing about this book that Diablo Cody has really done well is that even though the music, like, you think of it as sort of teen angsty, there is that in the show. There's a whole, like, teen angst plot line involving Frankie and her friends. Um, but there's also watching MJ's story, mm-hmm. it, it like, they find a way to make it also adult angst. <laughs> like, it's... Right. It, it, it fits. The music just really fits the story um, in a way that is really powerful. And I think what I was guilty of right there was I was projecting how I first experienced the music, mm-hmm. and you kind of put that in a time capsule. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's parts of it, like, uh, you want to know is always the big like showstopper number. It always gets huge applause. People are sometimes clapping before the song even starts. Like everybody, I think has a real memory of that song. And so watching the the character, even though this character is a teenager that's singing it, I think that you maybe are like transported back to that time because everybody has a story of like the ex that broke their heart that they're like. If I had something to say to you, it would be this. And it's fun to watch that every night. If we're transported, you can't be, though, up there on stage, right? Because you've got to stay in character. No, I have to be dropped in. <laughs> I have to be very dropped in. Um, and it's it's funny, like, when the audience is especially transported, as an actor, you have to be even more dropped in because it can be distracting sometimes, but it also can be extremely fueling. Um, so it just, it works. Yeah. There's a good chance there's a young man, a young woman, a young person in the back row of the balcony in Fayetteville or St. Louis or wherever the show is doing. They're watching you, mm-hmm. and you're inspiring them, ah. just like you were. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever think about that? I think about it often, often. Anytime, like, my family or any of my friends come to see the show especially, it becomes very personalized because – I grew up going to the theater with my family and my friends were all actors. We go to the theater together and we have these Broadway dreams like together. So if I'm like look up and see them out there, I'm like, like that was me. Like I was sitting there mere months ago being inspired and wanting to do this. And it really does fuel 
on hard days, um, my drive to keep going and to like give a good quality show. Thank you so much for coming in. May your next travel day not be as hectic yeah. as the one you just had. <laughs> All the snow and ice, you know. We're going to Tempe, so hopefully there you go. it'll be sunny, warm. I'm praying for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Terrilyn Jones is Frankie Healy in the national touring production of Jagged Little Pill, which is on stage at Walton Art Center in downtown Fayetteville through Sunday afternoon. She was with me earlier today in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. The Walton Art Center and the nonprofit Teen Action and Support Center, or TASC, are using the production of Jagged Little Pill and its themes to conduct a hygiene product donation drive. Earlier, we invited Kara Zenner, the Development Director of Teen Action and Support Center, and Jennifer Wilson, the Director of Public Relations at Walton Art Center, to join us inside the Carver Center for Public Radio to tell us more about this donation drive that lasts through the staging of Jagged Little Pill. Kara Zenner says the group's work dovetails with some of the themes of Jagged Little Pill. Teen Action Support Center is a local nonprofit um, that supports teens ages 13 to 19. Um, our mission is to empower teens to take action in their own lives. And we have four major programs. And the Walton Art Center uh, has been gracious enough to help us with our Thrive program. And that program um, helps us provide life skills, mentorship, um, basic needs, uh, career readiness. And so they're helping with our hygiene drive for this um, to help with the show. So. So let's talk about the hygiene drive. I mean, it's centered around Jagged Little Pill. How do people make a contribution? Yeah, so the, there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. You can drop off stuff when you come to see the show. Uh, we have donation bins in the lobby. Um, if you can't come to the show or if you find out about it later, you can always come and drop stuff off during the day. 10 to 2 is when the lobby is open. And then we also have a drop-off spot in Rogers mm -hmm. where Teen Action Support Center is. Yep, over by the Center for Nonprofits um, in Rogers. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for in the donation drive? We have um, shampoo, conditioner, soap, body wash, hygiene, uh, feminine products, deodorant. Right. Mm -hmm. How long has the Teen Action Support Center been in operation? Uh, we're 18th year. Wow. Uh, yeah. We have um, been in Northwest Art. We have three locations. We have two in Rogers. We have one um, on Emma in Springdale. That means there are some teens who were helped that are now in their 30s. Yes, there. It is exciting to hear some of the stories and see where they're at in life right now. So it's um, it, we helped uh, over fifteen hundred teens last year, and so we're excited to see what this year is going to bring. You mentioned that that this kind of works with the theme of Jagged Little Pill. I'm going to claim a little bit of ignorance. I know it's Alanis Morissette and mm -hmm. her music. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I don't know much about the show. So it's a new musical. It's actually won Tonys and Grammys. Um, so it's it's a really great musical about a modern American family. Um, but because it's a modern American family, it deals with the issues that they face, but also the hope that they have in their struggles. Um, so it deals with topics like opioid addiction, um, of course, teen and parent relationships. There is a biracial adoption that's in it. There's a lot of different issues that are brought up and things that it's things that a lot of families deal with, you know, today on a regular basis. Um, but all of that is set to the music of Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. So it's, as you would imagine, it's raw, it's emotional, um, it's really powerful. It's a great way to experience her music in a different way, not in a concert setting, but in a live theater setting and with a story kind of wrapped around it. 
And Kara, if someone is hearing this and maybe is just now learning about teen, mm-hmm. uh, the Teen Action Support Center, and they think they could use some services, how do they get in contact? What do they do? Absolutely. You can either call us, um, check out the website, and then, there, like I said, we offer four programs. Um, we have you know, counseling is one of our biggest programs. It is um, low to no cost counseling. Also, I know we talked about family. They also do family counseling, um, parent classes, which I think we all need as parents. Um, but the website is going to be your biggest resource um, call. They can help you get connected. We always looking for volunteers. Um, there's a lot of ways you can help volunteer at task. We're getting ready for our big fundraiser in February. Um, the website is a wealth of knowledge. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks. thank you. Kara Zenner is the development director at Teen Action and Support Center, an Arkansas-based nonprofit, and Jennifer Wilson is the public relations director at the Walton Art Center. The hygiene product donation drive continues at the Walton Art Center through Sunday afternoon, and you can find a list of requested items at waltonartcenter.org. You can learn more about the Teen Action and Support Center's mission at Task. NWA.org. That's task with a C. TaskNWA.org. This is Ozarks at Large. The series T, The Transgender Experience in Arkansas, examines the lives of eight trans youth, women, and men. Recorded in KUAF's Listening Lab, we'll hear the eight episodes on every other Wednesday of Ozarks at Large during the next couple of months. We'll begin with Ethan Avanzino. Ethan is a 35-year-old trans man who lives in Eureka Springs and works in the commercial airline industry. Ethan was interviewed by Taylor Johnson. So, Ethan, you came out in late 2015 as a transgender man on YouTube, a very public event for you. In the video, you say when you were four in the early 1990s, you told your mom that you wanted to be a boy. What was that experience like for you? So growing up, um, I always felt like I was different. We didn't really have the language of being trans or gender nonconforming, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. And so the best way I knew how to communicate to my mom was asking her if I could be a boy. And, of course, at the time, not knowing what trans was, my mom was like, well, no. Uh, But my mom raised me in a way that worked for everybody. Um, I wanted to play sports with the boys, so I was able to play on the boys' football team and baseball team. Um, I wanted to wear boys' clothes, so my mom let me do that, boys' tennis shoes. It was the little things that mattered to me. But my mom was very affirming of me uh, growing up. I think I'm really fortunate in that aspect. She didn't know that she was doing the right thing, but she was doing the right thing. So what was your childhood like? So growing up, I want to say I was a pretty happy kid. Uh, There were certainly awkward moments. Um, I always felt like I didn't quite fit in with anybody, but I did have majority male friends. And I wasn't bullied, um, which I feel really fortunate for. The guys that I was friends with, I feel like they saw me as one of their own. I remember in 
fifth grade, my best friend had a birthday party and my mom and I went to go, you know, knock on the door to go into the birthday party and all these boys from my fifth grade class uh, opened up the door and, oh, you invited a girl to this party? The rest of the guys were like, no, man, she's cool. She's one of us. You continued to live in the shadows as a trans youth up until college when you first discovered transgender culture. Instead of embracing your identity, you remain closeted up until trans celebrity Olympic gold medal winner Bruce Jenner came out as Caitlyn Jenner in 2015. What was it about Caitlyn that made you feel free enough to express your trans identity for the very first time? So Caitlyn Jenner had her interview that was broadcasted nationally, and both my mom and my sister separately texted me saying, I would love to talk to you about the Caitlyn Jenner interview. And I thought, oh my God, they know I'm trans. So I called my sister and I said, I got your text and yes, I'm transgender. And my sister responded, oh, I was not calling about that. I just wanted to hear what you had to say about the interview with Caitlyn. Um, Okay, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm a little bit shocked, but not surprised at all. Oh, and my sister actually said, I've always felt like I've had an older brother and a sister with you. And you know, my sister has been supportive ever since. So I hung up the phone with my sister and I thought, well, now my sister knows and she's not going to keep that from my mom. So I called my mom and I was like, well, I wasn't planning on having this conversation like this, uh, but I just told Sam, my sister, but I'm trans and I don't really know what that means right now, but I'm kind of working through what that means. Uh, but once I knew that I was out to my mom and sister, there really wasn't any going back. It was just a matter of figuring out the roadmap to eventually coming out on YouTube. Describe how it felt coming out so publicly. Were you scared? Were you validated? Were you happy? What was the dominant feeling? So I made a video to post on YouTube uh, selfishly because I didn't want to continue answering the same questions over and over again from friends, family, and coworkers. Truly, that was the only reason why I made it. And next thing I know, it's being shared amongst my friends, being shared um, amongst colleagues. I've had a couple of universities reach out to me asking if they could use my coming out video and some of their gender and sexuality courses. Since then, you've been an outspoken advocate for transgender civil rights, testifying against bias bills sponsored by right-wing lawmakers in several states including our own Arkansas, that aim to erase trans culture. More bias laws are enacted with each passing year. Why do you think this is happening, in your opinion? Uh, why are trans folk in particular being targeted, especially at this point in history, in this current day? So I think the anti-trans legislation is directly tied to the visibility of transgender people the more visibility that trans folks get in the media, the more anti-trans bills there are. And I think people uh, that are writing these bills are afraid of what they don't know. And if they don't know anybody that's trans, then that's why they're writing these bills. Um, I think we're at this, they call it the trans tipping point, And we, we can't go back in the closet. We are here and we exist. You relocated to Arkansas from Dallas in 2020 with your spouse, David Avanzino, who you say took your birth name when you were wed. 
Together, you purchased a derelict mid-modern motel in Eureka Springs, transforming it into Wonder Roo Lodge and Gravel Bar. What's life like for you in Eureka Springs, Arkansas? What attracted you to the hills, the valleys, the nature of Ozarks? We first visited Eureka Springs in the spring of 2018 for a diversity weekend. And the first thing that caught our eye was the entire town was just covered in rainbows. And it was like, what? what is this? You know, it's this beautiful small town in Arkansas. Is this, is this real? We found a, a small cabin in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was a perfect price and there's a whole backstory behind it. But nonetheless, it, it became ours. So that was November of 2019. Um, and we were of the thought process that it was going to be this five-year plan. You know, we'll figure out how to get to Arkansas in five years. And then March of 2020 happened. And my corporate job said, go home for two weeks while we figure out what this is. And I think, as we all know, two weeks turned into two months, turned into stay home forever. Um, So we packed up all of our stuff uh, from Dallas in March of 2020. And we said, if they call me back into the office, we'll figure it out then. But for now, we're going to go up to Eureka. And we've been there ever since. You not only operate a successful tourist business in Eureka, you work as a creative producer for an airline, a company which has earned top scores eight years in a row on human rights campaigns, corporate equality index. What's it like to be fully accommodated, seen, heard in your professional life? I don't have to think about my gender or sexuality on a day-to-day basis. And... That may sound counterintuitive, but there is enough going on with projects and deadlines and meetings. I don't have to worry about if someone's going to misgender me or use my birth name. I can just be an employee and just work. And that is such a beautiful thing because if I had to constantly worry about my identity while I was at work, that would be one more thing for me to have to worry about on top of the deadline and the projects and the meetings. For so long, talking about you know gender, sex, sexuality, religion, et cetera, et cetera, politics, uh, was frowned upon in the corporate environment. And while it's still a dance, no doubt, there is still a dance to be done in the corporate world, uh, to be given the opportunity to educate uh, is is an incredible feeling because I'm given a platform to open hearts and minds within this bubble that I have in corporate America. Because you were so visible as well as socially and politically active, you've been profiled nationally on various news sites, including CNN Digital and this year by the New York Times. What have been the fruits of such publicity in your life? The fruits of the publicity is the visibility itself. It took a visible transgender person for me to get the courage to come out myself. And so if a story about me or about what my husband and I are doing gives someone the courage to be themselves, then that is the fruit. There's a quote that I'm constantly reminded of, and it is, we plant trees under whose shade we never plan to sit under. And that is how I feel about being a visible trans person. I may not see equality in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean that I stop 
working towards it because there is going to be a little Ethan that is born today that in 20 years from now, I hope that their life is better and easier than mine is. And there was someone 20 years ago that paved the way for me to be here. So I feel like it is my responsibility to be a part of continuing to pave that path. And it's also a privilege that I hold. Ethan Avanzino of Eureka Springs, interviewed by Taylor Johnson inside the KUAF Listening Lab as part of the series T, the Transgender Experience in Arkansas. The series is also filmed, and you can watch at listeninglabkuaf.com. The series filmed by Emerson Alexander, edited by Sophie Narani, and produced by Jacqueline Froelich. The KUAF Listening Lab is made possible by Walmart Foundation's Creative Community in Northwest Arkansas through Bridging and Belonging Initiatives Grant. This is Ozarks at Large. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. All you have to do is go online to KUAFListeningLab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at KUAFListeningLab.com. A film centered in Little Rock is a nominee for the documentary Short Form Academy Award. The movie The Barber of Little Rock focuses on Arlo Washington, a barber who founded the bank People Trust. The film examines generational poverty, the effects of a wide income gap, and the mistrust of financial institutions that have traditionally not worked with marginalized communities. The movie was directed by John Hoffman and Christine Turner. The Oscar nominations for all categories were announced yesterday. The Oscars will be handed out in March. This is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. For those of you participating in a dry January, that is a January without alcohol, the end is almost in sight. But more and more people are ditching alcohol year-round. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth brings us this postcard from local drink mixer company Pink House Alchemy, where the bartenders say going sober doesn't have to be somber. Okay, my name is Morgan Short, um, and I'm the director of people and culture here at Pink House. We like to think of um, our entire product line as kind of an all-day product, essentially. So you can put it in your coffee in the morning, um, drinks or culinary applications midday, and then of course come nighttime, you know, a little nightcap cocktail moment. In recent times, as a bartender and as a you know company at large. We're seeing a lot of folks go the like no and slow route, lower octane, or just omitting alcohol altogether. So it's definitely important to cater to that audience. They want to have an elevated drink experience just as much as the person that is a bourbon connoisseur. So um, we find that people are really digging it. 
the reception has been really good. We do an NA happy hour. Folks seem to really enjoy having that as an option or an alternative. My name is Kenneth Smith and I'm the manager of the front of house at Pink House. Yeah, I love like the movement of the mocktail lately because I feel like the social pressure to sit down and have a drink with friends has kind of been lifted and a lot of restaurants and bars are now kind of like supplying a menu that you can order off of and still get the fun of like having a fancy little drink mm -hmm. but you're not actually committing to the alcohol of it and with the bitters and shrubs there's actually some great health benefits to our vinegar shrubs and so I think it's fun because you can actually like have a little immune boost with our ginger yeah, and things like it. that yeah feel good about it we're gonna do the smoldered faux loma so this is our pH Mexican chili syrup, our pH smoldered bitters, fresh grapefruit juice, fresh lime juice, and soda water. So for this drink specifically that Ken is going to be making, we definitely wanted to do a riff off of a, a traditional Paloma. Um, by adding the smoldered and the Mexican chili, we're giving it a little bit of a kick, a little bit of a bite, definitely more of an aromatic note than it would be if it were just straight grapefruit juice and sparkling water. But typically we try to kind of just riff off of known existing popular cocktails and try to try to mimic those Mimics flavors. Those flavors. Mm -hmm. So we start with one ounce of the Mexican chili lime syrup. I love the Mexican chili syrup because the bite from the chilies gives it a little bit of spice and for me whenever I go for a classic cocktail I kind of like either a smoked note or a spicy note so whenever I can get that but not have to drink any alcohol with it I still really appreciate that and so even our our classics menu we do like a Mexican chili lime soda and that is just so fun for me I love it a lot and then an ounce of lime and 1.5 ounces of grapefruit juice. And we prefer to do everything fresh squeezed so you get all those great flavors. And then we do about eight dashes of our pH smoldered bitters, but it's also kind of up to your preference. I like things a little bit smokier and bolder, so I feel like you can go up to 10 dashes, but then it starts to get maybe a little too bold. <laughs> and then I'll fill it with some ice, shake it up. Yeah, I think it's really important because um, people choose not to drink alcohol for so many different reasons. Um, and I think just by having the option available, it kind of eliminates that need for anybody to pry. Why aren't you having a drink? Um, gives people an opportunity to, you know, walk around with a fancy coupe glass, even though they may not be imbibing like the rest of everybody else. It definitely creates that inclusive social setting that I think a lot of people look for in alcohol. And then we're going to top with the sparkling water. And then we always garnish with our dried grapefruits, which we also sell in-house. Now you got a fun little mocktail. I guess I would say the best advice, I always encourage people to experiment in the kitchen, experiment behind their home bar find what flavors best speak to them. Um, there's, we're seeing a huge wave of this kind of espresso, tonic. espresso tonics yeah. and citrus coffees and things of that nature. So that's a really fun one to play with. Um, but it's 
kind of the road less traveled. So I always encourage people to do that. Try the weird thing. Try the thing that you don't think makes sense because it might work and it might work really well. It's yummy. It's delicious. Mm. Well done, Kenna. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was Morgan Short and Kenna Smith from Pink House Alchemy in Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth recorded that recipe with them last week. He also produces his stories inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a common concern in Northwest Arkansas with a novel solution. How do we make housing more attainable in our region? The Bentonville School District's approach is to supply the housing themselves. Wow. Maybe Arkansas hasn't done this in a school district. Programs across the nation have done this. Districts have done this. Our government does this. When we talk about military, they provide housing. Um, and so while it may seem novel to us, it it really has been proven to be a successful program. And many other districts are looking at it across the nation. Details and concerns from a state senator tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville. Contributors today include Sophia Narani and Daniel Carruth. The Transgender Experience in Arkansas is produced by Jacqueline Froelich, Emerson Alexander, and Sophia Narani. You can find the full episode of that new podcast at our website, KUAF.com. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll be back with you tomorrow for another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large, including a conversation about T2's new production that opens tonight, What the Constitution Means to Me. Yeah, at, uh, I'm excited to hear that conversation, and uh, and I need to get to Theater Square. I have not been there yet. This feels like the kind of show that's up my alley. I, I might need to go to this one. Yeah, and one of the... Th- T2 does so many things well, but one thing they really do well, and I think they've done well this time just by looking at pictures, the sets. Mm-hmm. Um, There's something about a black box theater that just like... Production is a big element yes, of it. Yes, It can be also very intimate mm-hmm. because you are right... I don't know what the seating is for this one, but you can be right there, right there, making eye contact with the actors. All right, we do have that show for you tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, February 17th at Walton Arts Center with Defying Expectations, showcasing three works that push beyond barriers from Darius Mio's eclectic style to Louise Farang's bold third symphony and Max Brooks' acclaimed violin concerto featuring Sona concertmaster Winona Fifield. Tickets at sonamusic.org.